Welcome to You Only Guide Me By Surprise, a suite of sonic somnambulism for those interested in poetry, peripety, magic, or mystery. I'm Landry Ayers. Uh, I know it's been a while since I posted anything substantial here, but I'm not done by any means, just sort of between projects. I've got a few things I've been tinkering with, but I wanted to write something and get it out there because I felt compelled to. I, I wanted to share something. So I think today I've cracked the code or I'm closer to cracking the code for one. Well, actually two, uh, lucky you. These two stories have been kind of strung together in my mind for several years now. They happen years apart and really have no bearing on one another except in how I connect them. Because of this, though, I thought it would be cool to imagine these stories in conversation with one another. So that's what this is. I don't know if it's going to work, if it will really come across. I don't even know at the end if it's going to make much sense, but I can't extricate these stories from one another in my mind now. Um, so I decided to put them together. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. And once again, thank you for listening. So here we go. I remember that the idea came rather unexpectedly. It was not like how my elementary school bus driver, Mrs. Skinner, had warned us all. Remember, kids, the first one's always free. That's how they get you hooked. But no. Uh, I don't remember which one of our little trio uh, lit up with the idea, but it was casual, you know, kind of exciting, but not in a, a risky way, more like someone proposing we go get ice cream or rent a movie or something. There were no trench coat donning shadows or hidden park handoffs. You know, it was my freshman year of college, and for the first time in my life, no one was looking over my shoulder like when I was 13, maybe 14 at this point in my life. Uh, my mom was driving me to school or somewhere else forgettable because I couldn't drive at this point when she told me that she had been asked to sing a song at some sort of school district employee assembly. My mom was a middle school choir director uh, and has a very lovely voice, uh, so she got asked to do these things sometimes. However, rather than accept outright or even say she was busy and could not make it, she told whoever had asked her, oh shucks, I don't know if I can, but you know what? I think I know someone who definitely has time in their schedule. I had been volunteered or rather was now being voluntold that my high school aged brother and I, much to our chagrin, had been stuck with plans for a Saturday morning. When the day arrived, having barely prepared the song I was supposed to be learning for private voice lessons, a rush of dread and anticipation overtook me. 
we went back to my dorm room to a room actually just two doors down the hall from my own. Out of somebody's Jansport backpack, someone pulled a plastic school supply box, one with those little dot ridges that you keep your colored pencils in as a kid. Inside were a few pieces of flimsy paper, a Bic disposable butane lighter, and a plastic bag tightly wrapped in dryer sheets that I think had another plastic bag in it. Inside of that one was the contraband. I had only ever seen the lettuce of the devil up close maybe two times in my life at this point, but we had this plan. The shower went on and the greenery rolled up into a tight little tube and the smoke detector we covered with a wet towel. And we were convinced that this truly ingenious method would disguise the steam room of ash and skunk we had built from the noses of our neighbors a mere 10 feet away in the common room as if a couple wet towels shoved underneath the door was really gonna do anything against all of this. Our summoning circle spun wheel on flint. Whoa, this feels wild. Oh, get my hand. The ghosts slithered up to the ceiling, swaddling us in hot ash, pulling us into the air by our eyelids. When we were done, we stumbled out of the bathroom and collapsed onto the cold floor of the dorm. It was very obviously all of our first time. So for about 10 minutes, we are basking in the chill vibes of our baked good indulgence. And one of my accomplices decides to put on some music to fit the mood. Shockingly, they did not make the obvious choice of Dark Side of the Moon or Bob Marley or something. Instead, they decided to put on Jason Mraz and Colby Calais' Lucky. And just like that, as if the song had harmoniously invoked them, the room's occupant, the one who we had come with, stood up and marched around the corner out of sight without saying anything to us. I heard the inner latch of the door. Snapping into sobriety, I felt each individual synapse in my brain fire in slow motion, their spark lit by the scuff of heavy boots on the carpet and the sight of these four close-cropped haircuts. We came face to face with a cathatorium filled with school resource officers. You know, the police that they put at schools, even if you don't have a metal detector to, you know, threaten children with tickets if they get into fights or show up late or are truant or whatever. Now, 
My brother and I had known that we would be singing for school-appointed officials, uh, but I don't remember knowing the precise nature of who these individuals would be. Rather than a bevy of paraprofessionals with eyeglasses on necklaces or administrators with cell phones on belt clips, we saw what must have been 100 agents of municipal code enforcement. This was worse than any Sunday morning church skit that I had ever been roped into, and I have done plenty of those. But the feeling was pretty similar. Uh, a white tiled room filled with coffee-clutching adults eagerly and genuinely interested in a child's presentation, and me just wanting to be asleep. This was just a bad dream, I thought. You know, I, I blinked hard and fast, but when I opened my eyes each time, nothing had vanished from my sight. There were still four of them, thumbs hooked on their Batman utility belts. We, without even being asked, had already fallen into a lineup, lumps in our throats, our hands preparing to reach for identification. And they all just kind of stood glowering down on us with swagger and authority. And we're in this tiny room, it's cramped and now brimming with badged police. My mother, my brother, and I were obviously the only non-uniformed personnel present, and our Sunday best that she had encouraged us to wear was still not quite pressed enough to disguise our discomfort. I sat rigid for what must have been two hours listening to officers being recognized for their service. Speech after speech on the importance of abstinence, the war on drugs, the corruption of youth and community. We were in the front row and I'm sitting next to my mom and I know she is having just as little of fun as my brother and I are having. But because of where we're sitting and the nature of this, it really felt like we were about to rise for altar call like newly saved souls, repentant and dedicated, to be presented before the congregation. I just blurted out a confession. I could feel the single swinging white-hot light bulb pointed at my face already. Why don't you just tell us what happened? It'll be easier this way. We don't want to have to do this the hard way. Ignorant of my rights or any street smarts, I folded like a cheap suit. I might as well have done my best George Michael Bluth and said, I was going to smoke the marijuana like a cigarette. Now, I admitted outright to these cops' faces what I had done, and they just said, okay, and basically walked away. One of them even walked me to my room down the hall and he was going to search it, and when I let him in, knowing he wouldn't find anything because it didn't exist, he, without even looking around, just asked me point blank, be honest with me, am I gonna find anything in here? We were in private, he was the only one in the room with me, and I told him the truth, and he didn't even bat an eyelash or glance anywhere. He took me for my word. We walked back to my friend's dorm room, the room was searched, half-heartedly in hindsight, feeling they had secured their bombshell confession without so much as lifting a finger, I suppose. But somehow, due to our disposal methods, 
Nothing of substance was located, and we were left alone. No criminality invoked. Except for the dorm's resident advisor who had been alerted to our divulgence, standing just outside the door. I don't remember his name, but in my memory, he looked a lot like a Josh Groban's You Raise Me Up, faded as my brother placed the microphone back onto the lectern. And there was, I gotta say, a shocking amount of applause. A lot of Groban heads on the grapevine police force, apparently. Elbowed in the side, I rose and turned around to meet the gaze of a bunch of enforcers of state power. And with a head nod, I signaled to my mom to hit play on the stereo she had patched into the PA system. I think it's worth taking a moment to reflect on just the sort of ridiculousness of this image because it is the thing that sticks out in my mind and makes me want to share this part of the story. It, it makes me laugh and kind of go like, how did this happen to me? Uh, I'm a wayfish, pale, redheaded 13-year-old boy with this like 2006 scene haircut, bangs swept down in front of the eyes to one side, fair faucet wings out on either end, sort of fluttering at the sides of my head in a Sunday school outfit, standing behind a municipal community center lectern about to sing a show tune about Don Quixote to an auditorium filled with school resource officers. I am really lucky that iPhone videos were not nearly as prevalent at this time because this would have been one of those videos that boomers post to Facebook for propaganda. It would be like, no one would stand up for this young boy today, or, you know, something like that. It would be terrible. I don't know if you've ever seen the musical or film Man of La Mancha. I still haven't to this day. Um, but apparently Peter O'Toole really killed it as Don Quixote. Uh, I do have to say, though, at 13 even, I was more of an Andy Williams fan, and his crooning inspired the version of The Impossible Dream that came out of me. Staring into the abyss of black, starched shirts, I met the eyeline of a cop in the front row. He was sitting up tall, had his eyes locked on me, and he was mouthing every word of the song along with me. I quickly averted my gaze and glanced over to my mom on the phone the next morning. I heard her let out a sigh I had heard many times before, so much that I could generally interpret its precise meaning, even compressed through phone lines. Um, I knew generally what was coming. I'm not angry, just disappointed. I'd heard it before. Unfortunately, uh, she was angry. She was betrayed, let down. And I think the worst part was that it wasn't over. While 
I'd managed to avoid criminal charges because that's how little they had on us. My guilt and shame had compelled a degree of honesty that gave my university all the grounds they desired to seek further disciplinary action, which would take weeks to be handed down. This was only the beginning for me. If I had felt like a high-flying inflatable tube man outside of a car dealership for 15 minutes the day before, I had withstood the storm of dread throughout the night with only minimal damage, only to just be unplugged in the morning light. As the air was let out of me, I felt myself just deflate and the tension died down as the song finished. There was an eruption of hand claps and a standing ovation for my brother and I from all these cops. My mom was in the front row, tired as we were, but pretty proud of us. After a few more speeches, still more to be done, we were brought up once more and presented with two heavy pieces of metal bearing the outline of the state of Texas with the colors of the flag and the letters D-A-R-E. Challenge coins for the ever-so-effective Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program. After a month or more of waiting for the case, as they said, to be processed, meetings of student disciplinary review boards to convene, formal letters of apology were written, uh, charges raised and subsequently dismissed of intended narcotics distribution, I was suspended from school for the remainder of my fall freshman semester. As of this point in the semester, that was a whole two weeks, you know, light in the scheme of things. Uh, I went home for Thanksgiving break and then just didn't come back for the two weeks before finals. It doesn't sound like much, but all of my credits were then listed as attempted, uh, incomplete, save for one class I had actually finished my work for early. I also received a note of non-academic suspension listed on my transcript, a label with a vagueness I feared would haunt me in future job searches for many years, the closest thing to being foiled by a permanent record I've ever actually come by. I was forced to vacate my dorm room and shove all my belongings in a friend's garage for two months and wait. Everyone that I really cared about was disappointed in me. For some people, it was humiliating them as if uh, for stupidly getting caught, well-earned, and for wasting time and money and trust, which is a regret that has lasted. After a rather humiliating Christmas with my extended family, who had all heard about this shortly after, I returned to university in the cold afterglow post-winter break.
By March, most of this had been forgotten. I received an email actually one day which seemed auto-generated. It read like names had just been plugged in and was sort of a form letter. Apparently, my one completed course, which was an A, thank you very much, had actually registered as completed and as such, the way my GPA was weighted, I had gotten a 4.0 in the school's system uh, because they did not have a way to factor in uh, attempted incomplete credits for non-academic suspension as a demerit. I had been named among the elite ranks of our freshman achievement scholars. They gave me an award, a literal certificate that I got from the dean of our department that I could hold in my hands. I turned the coin over. I remember the weight of it, denser and heftier than a real piece of money. Plus, it was huge, probably almost twice the size of a quarter, filling up my entire palm, the filigree around the rim leaving a Greco-Roman imprint in a perfect circle. It would produce a boisterous clang if dropped on a hard surface and a satisfying deep thud on carpet. It seemed a heroic talisman, less one of those certificates with the police cap wearing teddy bear, and more like a medal like what they give the heroes at the end of Star Wars, even Chewie. I thought of the lyrics for the first time, the ones the officer in the front row knew by heart. All of these cops probably imagined themselves the Don Quixotes of the world, heroes astride noble steeds doing battle, earnest in their unceasing pursuit of justice in a world lacking chivalry. I think they should probably reflect on their tilting at windmills. My brother held on to the coin, keeping it tucked into the console of his Ford Focus Special Edition. I lost mine somewhere down the line, and I now kick myself every time I think about it because what a great totem it was. I imagine it kind of like the items in Inception, these small weighty things that you keep only for yourself as a way to know whether the life you're walking through is nothing but an elaborate dream. I picture in my mind sort of flipping it to them when they catch it in one hand and look down on it, and I give them a wink when they come in the room as if to somehow, you know, secretly signal, you know, come on, hold on, I'm jump streeting this operation, give me a pass. Or maybe in some other timeline it could have reminded me that what I was doing was likely not the best thing. I could run my fingertips over the surface of the Texas border, embossed on the obverse, feeling the Lone Star in its heart, so that when they took me away and locked me up and ran my prints, they could at least see I was a good old boy who didn't mean no trouble. When all of this happened, and even after I told most people, this is where they would kind of breathe a sigh of relief uh, or say that, you know, I'd gotten away with something. I even thought this at the time. Uh, I, was, I was so relieved. But in hindsight, this moment is really what kind of scares me 
the most because it took me so long to learn the real truth of the situation, the hypocrisy and privilege that allowed it to occur. If my parents and where I grew up and culture had not instilled within me this supplicant response to police, and more importantly, if I didn't really look the way that I did, if all three of us didn't look the way we all did, you know, see white suburban college students, I likely would not have had the same result. You know, according to the ACLU, in every state that has legalized or decriminalized marijuana possession, people of color are still more likely to be arrested for possession than white people. And in some states, the disparity has become even worse. In Virginia, at the time I was in school, they were 3.4 times more likely to be arrested than a white person like me. Now, I admitted outright to these cops' faces what I had done, and they just said, okay, and basically walked away. This is the real tragedy of the story. It, it exposes this vast hypocrisy in American policing. I feel guilty thinking about all of these memory now as, as funny and isolated as the images of them are to me. Getting caught while listening to a song called Lucky. Only getting two weeks of academic suspension as punishment. Receiving an award after doing so. But in totality, it's just not right. And taken as a pair with my D.A.R.E. experience, it really feels like a testament to my inability to have any modicum of self-awareness at certain points in my life. But as Mrs. Skinner had warned me on the bus, I guess the first one's always free. You Only Guide Me By Surprise is written, produced, and edited by me, Landry Ayers. Thank you so much for listening once again. I want to thank my mom and my brother for both being characters in this story, uh, as well as my two compatriots from my college days. I hope you're both doing well if you listen to this. Uh, Obviously, no hard feelings from me. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, tune in next time subscribe to the feed rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts tell somebody about the feed Uh, thank you I'm so excited to be doing more of these stories and all of the kind words and when people tell me they listen it really means a lot because not a lot of people listen Uh, that's okay though Um, I'm just kind of rambling into the microphone right now I probably won't use most of this material as I am recording my credits but here I go and uh, okay I'm gonna stop talking